everybody. Welcome back to the Noel Castler podcast, episode 97. It's been a little while. Sorry for the break. I was traveling. I was down in New Orleans and I was in Florida, as some of you know, if you've been reading the Substacks, but I'm back. Pulled out the McAllister, as I often do. It's a good, it's a good guitar. Since we last spoke, you know, the last episode I was talking about Jeff Young, Jackson Brown's organ player who passed away um, recently. And then later that week, the following week, week, David Lindley passed away, as some of you guys know who've read my stuff. And you guys know who David Lindley is. He was Jackson Brown's kind of accompanist and right-hand man and foil and, you know, just contributor. He sort of raised the whole game uh, around the music that I loved and I've talked about on the program so much. That early 70s, you know, for every man, late for the sky, running on empty. That's David Lindley singing that falsetto and playing that crazy, you know, slide guitar that's probably one of the most heard riffs in the world every day. And, uh, he was in the, you know, played with the section. You guys might know Lee Sklar, who was on the show. You know, just a monumental figure, especially in my personal life. And he was on the tour, the first tour I did with Jackson Brown and his full band. David Lindley was opening, and Jeff Young was in the band. So, two of the guys that I had the pleasure of sort of serving as a road manager, you know, and, and watching as a fan and talking to as a friend passed away within a week of each other. And then I went on the road. So it's been a long couple of weeks. I've still been very active on Twitter and everything, but that's, that's the reason for the delay. And it was my birthday too. <laughs> I turned 52 on Saturday and thank you all for the birthday wishes. So uh, I was hoping Trump would go to jail. That, that's what I was, you know, that's what I blew out the candles <laughs> asking for last year. It hasn't quite come to fruition yet, but it looks like we're close, as you guys know. We're sort of all on indictment watch. And I was actually going to do the podcast earlier in the week, and then I was like, no, I'm going to do it. And then I'm going to pick up Twitter, <laughs> you know, pick up my phone after I record it and see that he was indicted. But it, I guess it doesn't look like it's coming imminently. Um, though who knows at this point it's coming and, and I think that's the point and I think finally he's being held accountable and I know there's a lot of talk about like this is not the most serious charge and that's correct but it doesn't mean he shouldn't be held to account for it I like many others don't understand why Merrick Garland wasn't sort of ahead of the charge you know trying to overthrow an election and foment a violent coup seems like you know that should be what you go for first right this feels a little bit like getting John Wayne Gacy on parking tickets you know how about the bodies in the basement but I guess we're going to get to those you know and, and one two three he's got four cases so uh you know, let these dominoes fall. But it's already being packaged, you know, as a position of strength by the GOP because they're sort of coalescing around him and, and planning war rooms. You got Jim Jordan down there with James Comer at Disney World trying to figure out how to save him, you know, in their GOP retreat. And they're even talking about, like, hauling the Manhattan District Attorney in front of Congress for hearings, which is just completely insane and completely interfering with the rule of law. And they're saying that, you know, a politician shouldn't be, you know, 
held to sort of political retribution in the courts. And this is the guys that chanted lock her up <laughs> for the last six years. So it's more hypocrisy and more, you know, trying to protect a criminal. He's their act, you know, he, it's like kiss. They don't want to take the makeup off, right? You know, he, he's the, he's the cartoon character that they're all hiding behind and that is easily digested on the right. Right? He's what MAGA is into because he gets up there and he spits hate and he's charismatic you know, in his way with his creepy looks and whatever, but they love him. People always loved him. You know, that, was the, that was the hard thing about working on Celebrity Apprentice and being around Trump is that like, there was a popularity to who he was. He was, a, you know, he was a figure in the New York scene and the, the TV scene and that's what NBC exploited, right? They wouldn't have given him a contract if people didn't tune in and watch. And, and that's hard to come by, right? Especially when it's baked in like it is with Trump for decades. And somebody like Ron DeSantis, as we're now seeing, doesn't really have a chance against that, you know, that kind of charisma factor. And the GOP recognizes that. My point is the GOP, you know, in any rational sense should be like, all right, here's our chance. You know, here's our thousandth chance to walk away from this guy and pick another guy to pin our hopes on. And they still seem incapable of doing it, you know, of doing that. Even though DeSantis is like, here, pick me. I'm a Nazi. I'm full on hate everybody. I'll make it illegal to be gay, you know, as they just expanded their law this afternoon in Florida. This is why I'm doing the podcast because it pissed me off so much. You know, I have to, I have to find my anger. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that don't say gay where you couldn't teach it, you know, from kindergarten to third grade is, you know, any sort of gender identity, sexual orientation stuff. That's now they're trying to expand that into the high schools. You know, they can't tell the high school students, the reality of what life is, is that people are born different ways, different ways. And that's just a fact of life and there's nothing wrong with it. And it's perfectly natural. And we've evolved as a species to recognize that. And we try not to discriminate, you know, or, or ostracize or let alone like, you know, hurt and harm people in those communities. But, you know, Ron DeSantis is, is making his political sort of bona fides with the Nazis and with the conservatives by saying like, I hate gay people and, and we're gonna legislate hate against them and bigotry. And that's what he's doing. And it's very popular in Florida, right? Cause you have a lot of brainwashed people. I call them moms with mullets. Cause I went down there and I was talking to people and I was watching all the, you know, all the the local kind of school board hearings where these these groups that are well funded mind you right these anti trans anti you know lgbtq organizations in florida that show up at these school boards and stuff they're all getting tons of money from Koch brothers and federalist society and project veritas and all these scumbags that are sort of behind the scenes fueling these cultural fires they're funding you know, these easily manipulatable, brainwashed white folks, right? Cracker-ass white folks. I'm sorry if that's a, you know, I can't think of a more, you know, like artful term at this moment, you know, and, and they're picking on poor people, you know, which the Republicans always do anyway. They're brainwashing these people that they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't like sit and have dinner next to. You think Ron DeSantis wants to hang out with people in the panhandle? You know, everything he's doing is serving South Florida, Miami, Palm Beach. You know, that's where all the benefit is going. All the largest from his corrupt sort of government, 
you know, that he's running down there. It's all these scammers that are getting rich down there. It's a windfall. You've never seen so many Mercedes and, and, and Rolls Royces. I mean, it, it looks like the end of an empire when you get down there. You're like, oh, this is where all the money launderers and all the hedge fund bros and all the people that are doing everything wrong, not that everybody in the financial industry is doing something wrong, but you know, there's just too much money flying around down there, cheap money as we saw with, you know, if you've been paying attention to the Fed and the banking collapse and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, Florida's becoming a capital of that. And it's all sort of, you know, reaching its peak down there. And my point is that's who DeSantis is courting. And he's using the MAGA sort of hordes and these cultural, you know, issues, right? These, these things that can start fires and get idiots to show up and protest at school boards. They're using those things to manipulate these folks. And it's never more clear than when you go down there and you see these people, you know? And it's the same thing Trump did. Trump wouldn't hang out with the people that voted for him, right? When he walked through his casinos, he used to make sure his security guards were next to him so the ladies didn't get up from the, you know, slot machines and run over and try to, t you know, shake his hand or take a selfie. The selfies weren't really big back then, but, you know, he, he, he basically had a standing rule like, don't let these people near me. You know, the deplorables comment that Hillary Clinton said, Trump felt the same way, you know, and Hillary Clinton was at Trump's wedding, not to disparage Hillary, but to make the point that these guys want to be elitists. Ron DeSantis wants to be an elitist. He went to Yale. Nobody goes to Yale because they want to be a man of the people, right? You know, a kid who's a middle-class dude from Tampa Bay whose father installed, you know, Nielsen rating systems door-to-door -door in people's homes, you know? The kid went to Yale on a scholarship, played baseball, and then said, here's my quickest way to power. This is DeSantis, and he also, there's something wrong with the guy. If, if you look up what he did in Guantanamo and Fallujah, Surge, he, he sort of got off on watching people get tortured. And, and you can see that affect in the guy. <laughs> you can see that there's something wrong with this guy. But fortunately, and this has been said, you know, you see the pundits saying this on TV, like he's not ready for prime time. And, and he's certainly proving that with a plum, right? He had the stupid comment about, you know, the war in Ukraine being a territorial dispute, which is an idiot thing to say for anybody running for president of the United States, Republican or Democrat. So he had that major blunder, and he doesn't seem to know how to handle Trump. And he's certainly not alone in that, especially in the GOP and the, the male branch of the GOP. You've never seen a less, you know, tough guy group of people like for for a bunch of dudes that have all the cosplay down and the wolverine beards and the ar-15s they couldn't stand up to a septuagenarian in a diaper when he started insulting them on the debate stage in 2015 they shrunk they shriveled in front of your eyes and i think it traumatized them right because they're not standing up to him at all now you know, they're, they're his lap dogs once again, Kevin McCarthy. And, you know, some of them are just invisible, right? Where's Marco Rubio? You don't hear his name much these days. You know, so some of them are just hiding. You know, I want, you know, I want to say hiding in the closet, but I didn't want to give the wrong impression, but that may be the case as well. They're, you know, they're, they're pretending to be something other than who they are, right? They're, they're basically scared, venal men looking to make money, and Trump bullied and cowed them to the point that he took over their party and most of their country 
in essence, for all of us, right? Because Trump has irreparably damaged the United States. You know, maybe that's too harsh a word because hopefully we'll, we'll fix this if we can progress to the point where we can address climate change and we can address like real, you know, bigotry and racism and anti-Semitism and see it as a national security threat. Because that's what it is, right? When you have politicians calling for armed revolt, right? Bernie Carrick, who's a criminal, you know, NYPD guy who, who took a, an apartment that was meant for, for first responders working on the pit after 9-11 and used it to have affairs with mistresses, some of whom were widows of 9-11, you know, guys. Like, he's a scumbag scumbag. He was Giuliani's little henchman. He's a little mobster. He went to prison in Jersey. He's out now. He was on Trump's, you know war team that put together January 6th. He was in the war room at the Willard. You know, he, he was knee deep in the logistics of what happened on January 6th, which was a coup attempt, right? So now that Trump is facing potential prosecution in Manhattan, he called for police officers, you know, NYPD, who many of them are like, ha already have a gang mentality. You know, if you look at, you know, Pat Lynch and all these guys, and I've already covered that on other shows, but he called on those guys to basically walk off the job, to refuse to book and process President Trump. Like, that's insane. That's insane for a public official to say, even a disgraced one like Bernie Carrick, you know, or senators, but they're feeding into this, right? They feed into this cultural warfare and, you know, and it could be coming together where it's almost the perfect storm that, that, you know, ironically ends up benefiting Trump. I hate to say that, you know, he is finally being held accountable and it's going to be, you know, his business is going to be depleted, but he's already getting so much money from Saudi Arabia, it might not matter. You know, what becomes of Letitia James's case and dismantling, you know, I don't even think he needs the real estate empire as much anymore. He needs places to hang out, but they're clearly making, you know, other, you know, finding other ways to survive. The grifting off the MAGA people. He's making, he made, he made a million and a half bucks on Saturday fundraising off of this thing. So it's an endless cash cow, right? The more scandal he gets into, the more trouble, the more he's able to use it as some kind of jujitsu you know, or judo on his followers. And they just keep playing along. And part of that are, you know, reaching into their pockets. And part of that is because of the system that's built up around it. The lies they're being told every night on Fox News. They're looking up to these politicians, you know, that are, that are weaving in these themes of firearms, you know, Second Amendment rights and abortion and all this, all these issues that are BS that we need to like educate people. You know, we need to tell people, like, if you have a politician who's telling you to hate your fellow citizens, that guy is not acting in the best interest of the United States, okay? That guy is being, you know, sub, uh, a subversive, you know, in a society. You want people who understand that everybody has a right to equal protections under the law and equal opportunities. You know, that's what we have to strive for, treating people fairly. The Republican budget this week was like it went after children, child care, you know, after school programs, it went after lunch programs, it went after Medicaid, it had these draconian like work requirements. You know, they've always tried to punish poor people because it played well, right, with the base that they were courting. Reagan came up with that stuff, Lee Atwater, you know, and, and it's mean. 
and and in Trump's era, it's metastasized to the point that the cruelty is the point, right? To to quote Adam Serwer, you know, however you say his name, Serwer, he quoted, he made it, made up that, you know, now cliche, but it's real, right? The cruelty is the point. How mean can we be? And, and when people are confused and broken and hurt inside, like hurting people hurt people, they'll act out upon this stuff. And there's, it's so sophisticated, the messaging and manipulation now that, that it's terrifying. You know, it's a very scary place if you're looking at the big picture, right? And it can feel overwhelming. That's why we need the institutions to step forward. We need Trump to get indicted. You know, we needed Merrick Garland to come out kicking ass a year ago. You know, we didn't need this slow, meticulous, whatever the hell they're doing. And I'm not saying they're not doing anything. They obviously are. But like, you know, let us know. You know, be like, hey, I know you guys want to see some action. I promise you, it's coming. The hammer's coming down. I know they say they can't tip him off, but he did it on TV. We all saw what happened on January 6th. So, you know, it's, it's scary and it, it needs to hit a quicker pace, in my opinion, because we have all these other issues. You know, we had a climate report that came out on Monday that's like, if we don't, get drastic about trying to reduce, you know, greenhouse gases and stuff just to maintain the catastrophe that's already upon us. Life as we know it is is done in a lot quicker time than like most people probably realize. You know, most people sort of can't even handle that at this point, like really realistically looking at that stuff and I understand why. You know, and I'm not going to get into all that now. I got into a lot of it last time, but that my point in in saying that and bringing that up is that like that's what we're missing out right we got this distraction and this chaos not that it's not important it doesn't need to be dealt with but by having this trump saga go on six seven years now we're taking valuable time away that we could be progressing as a nation that we could be leading the world in addressing climate change right in finding new technologies new ways for energy new ways for you know equality and manufacturing so we're not just governed by like this global capitalist you know using human beings you know in, in, for profit and in, in, in a way where so much cash gets accumulated by so few people that all the balances get thrown off you know and then you get a bad guy in there and it becomes impossible to you know to right the ship again and that's sort of what we're facing right the pressures and the money behind what trump really stood for you know himself being a figurehead for that is immense as i've covered on this podcast for two years now it's two years this month i think it's the two-year anniversary of the noel castler podcast so <laughs> thank you for listening to my hour-long rants and uh this is the end of the second season where it's just me doing it solo but my point is I've been covering these same themes because they're not going away. If they dissipated a little, I'd love to pivot to something else or, or you know, talk about behind the scenes music stories. But, you know, it's not the time for that. It's the time to really kind of examine what's going on and see where the opportunities lie, right? Because all of this stuff is a great, is, it provides an opportunity to become more compassionate 
right? I'm sure one of the side effects of the last couple of years is that more people got into the Black Lives Matter movement, more people understood how important it was to, you know, accept and, and, and uh, you know, stand up for your, your brothers and sisters in the LGBTQ community and mothers in my case, you know, your daughters, your brothers, your sons, like, you know, to understand that like, you know, we're all the same and we're all one big family. Like there's, there's a lot of progressive people that are sort of, you know, a, a little hipper to that and a little more vocal about it than they probably were pre-Trump, right? So that's a good thing, but that's because we have to be, right? Our back's against the wall, you know? Abortion and reproductive rights is not just a women's issue, right? It was a women's issue when I was a kid, right? There was a big, I, I took place in a march on DC, late 80s, I want to say, early 90s, big, you know, March for Women's Reproductive Rights and stuff on, on Washington, you know, and this was in the Bush one era, you know, and it was mostly women, which is why I was there. <laughs> it was a, it was a fun weekend. But uh, <laughs> that's just a joke, kind of. But um, my point is, like, it's men and women now, right? You know, the Black Lives Matter. It was like Obama, President Obama said, like, he's like, I've never seen so many white people out there. This, that was the difference this time. You know, there was white suburban kids out there too. So my point being, that's all a good thing, right? You know, they've made it such a stark binary choice between good and evil that a lot of people are going out of their way for good, right? And, and that should be the theme. Go out of, go out of your way for good. That's how you counterbalance this stuff, right? In recovery, when you work on, like you, you recognize your character defects, right? Step six and seven, you talk about like, I have these character defects and you're sort of becoming willing to have your higher power remove them, right? You know, which is a weird thing to think about. It's very ethereal and you're like, you know, I'm jealous and I want my jealousy removed. But how do you do that, right? Like what action do you take to do that besides preying on it? As a person, you can take the opposite action, right? You, you can do these spiritual things that sort of shift your thinking, you know? You, you become unjealous, whatever that is. You know what I mean? You know, if you're quick to anger, you try to be patient. You take a breath. You know, there's all these kind of things that you can identify and do in your own life that create sort of energetic kind of spiritual changes in you and in the world around you. Because... The weird thing is like when you change your internal space, your outer things shift too. And, and, and I don't think anybody really knows who that, how that works. So that's a lot of a, you know, Eastern philosophy addresses that, yoga, you know, but you know, your thoughts matter. You know, The Four Agreements is a great book to read on that kind of stuff, like be impeccable with your word always tell the truth, don't make assumptions, always do your best. You know, when you sort of reorient your energy, the world reacts in kind, the universe rather, right? Because the universe is sort of always giving you an option. Every moment is a choice and you can either move towards peace, you know, or move towards the opposite of that, right? And whatever that is, anger, suffering, chaos, you know, it's just tricky right you know and it gets extra tricky to to carry out the recovery metaphor if you're somebody who doesn't like to feel things <laughs> you know because because then you're you know you don't want to sit and feel your feelings and, and there's a good chunk of life that is going to involve suffering you know as as we're talking about you know 
losing a couple of friends and people I admired. And we've all done that, right? We're in a season of loss. You know, there's nobody who hasn't, you know, unexpectedly, shockingly lost people they loved and care about, cared about in the last few years, even if it's just, you know, your favorite actor or something, you know? So my point is the one thing we can control in all this is, is sort of how we react to things. And when it becomes as drastic as it seems right now, and we have so many bad examples of who we don't want to be, it's important to keep moving towards like, what do we want to be? You know, what kind of person do I want to be? Right? We talked about Jimmy Carter. You know, that, there's a guy who, who lives, you know, lives by the teachings, you know, of the religion that so often gets co-opted by the right. <laughs> you know, that guy's a, a Christian. I love to say this thing about him, but that, you know, the, the secret service vehicle that guards the house that he lives in, that he's in now with Rosalind Carter, that vehicle alone is worth more than the home he is in, right? That's a former president living in a house that's, you know, it's not a shack, but it's modest to the point that it's not as expensive these days as, you know, the SUV and, you know, that stuff's got like all kinds of high-end, you know, it's not like a Chevy Yukon or whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a high-tech thing, but I just think that's a great analogy, you know? And that's a guy who, you know, he became president. Even the Democrats, you know, usually cash in when they leave the presidency, right? It's, you know, you, you figure, I earned it. You know, somebody's going to start a foundation and make some money and, you know, live in Bedford and chill out. And, you know, they've earned that right. No, no shame in it. Carter's like, I want to build houses for the needy. You know, dude was swinging a hammer into his 90s because he knew what was important, what had value, you know. And I think that way is what gathered all those dark forces around him, right? I, I've covered this on other shows, how like the Carter administration was like the beginning of the Koch brothers really getting, you know, going from sort of their father's John Birch society to this new kind of libertarianism federalist society thing that became well-funded, you know, where these conservatives got really serious about prosecuting their aims, right? Because I think they somehow energetically reacted to who Carter was and they didn't want that to catch on. That kind of compassion and, you know, conservation-minded stuff was a threat to them. So they chose the sort of blunter, bullying way, which Reagan had, right? Who famously took down the solar powers off the roof, right? Who made his whole campaign about attacking the poor and a myth of the welfare queen in Detroit and all this kind of stuff. Used all this sort of racist language. You know, back then it was a bit more of a, a dog whistle, but the realities weren't, you know? And, and I've said many times, I was smack dab in the middle of that, you know, living with a single mom outside of Washington, D.C., you know, in a, in a very mixed neighborhood, you know, I was probably the only one or two other white kids, you know, it was predominantly African-American and Latino, you know, lots of, you know, young families. We were in the shadow of the University of Maryland. So a lot of, you know, people were working nursing jobs and going to school at night and, you know, strivers, a good thing, you know, a wholesome place to be in many ways. And Reagan came in and attacked it. You know, he attacked these kids whose, you know, parents were working hard, but could use the free breakfast or free lunch, you know, including myself, right? They took that away from children in a public education, you know, pennies a day, really, 
you know, but somehow taking that away, you know, ketchup is a vegetable, right? As I think Ed Meese famously said, like that was just cruelty. Cruelty was the point and people loved it because they liked the myth of what it, you know, what he offered, you know, in, in response to that is, you know, America is about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and chopping wood and all this, you know, his morning of America, morning in America crap, you know, where he's bailing hay. And in reality, he cheated to get the job, right? As we just learned in the New York Times this Sunday. And if you didn't read that bombshell, you know, article, you should. Peter, Alec, Peter, uh, damn, now I can't remember his name. New York Times, the, the big New York Times writer came out on Sunday. I wrote a substack about it. It's in, his name is in my substack. But anyway, that was about something we all knew to be true. My grandmother called it at the time is that, you know, Iran waited until the Ayatollah Khomeini waited until Reagan was sworn in to let the hostages go. Because in reality, Carter had already negotiated their release in October. And the Republicans got word of this and they wanted Reagan to win. And they knew if the hostage was, hostages were released then that very likely Carter could get reelected. And they wanted to make sure that didn't happen. So they interfered in international affairs and they got some big guns to do it. John B. Connolly, the former governor of Texas, who was a Democrat, he was a ally of Johnson the whole time. He was in the car when JFK was murdered in Dealey Plaza. Governor Connolly was hit too. He was in the front of the car. Um, you know, so a guy who's been a, a huge figure in, in Texas and, and Democratic and American politics sort of went to the dark side with Ben Barnes, who'd been the lieutenant governor of Texas and was another very prominent insider. They went to the Mideast and, and through cutouts and communicating through Nancy Reagan, <laughs> bizarrely, you know, met people in airports and stuff and passed on messages that if the Ayatollah waited until Reagan took office, he'd get a better deal, right? And what was that deal? Reagan took office, right? They held the release, Reagan got sworn in, and then from 1981 to 1986, what did Reagan do? He surreptitiously, right, in secret, started trading arms to Iran, selling them weapons in, in, in defiance of an embargo, right? They did it behind the scenes because there was compromise, right? So there was compromise. You know, the, 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 the Iranians, Ayatollah Khomeini's regime had that over Reagan, that they'd done him this favor. So Reagan did them a solid and started selling weapons immediately in 1981. And it lasted until they got busted in 86 with Ollie North and those guys, right? And they were also, you know, taking cash from them and then spending the cash in Central America and buying more weapons, you know, for Sandinista or to fight the Sandinistas, to arm the Contras. And they were selling cocaine, you know, and running it up through Jim Hole's farm to the United States and pouring it in those same neighborhoods that I just mentioned, the neighborhood I grew up in right? The CIA and George Bush and Ronald Reagan were the biggest cocaine dealers in this country in the 80s. And that neighborhood that was 70s, you know, coming out of a tough time and the tumult of the 60s and all the sort of like, you know, 
stuff we'd already gone through as a nation with civil rights alone in the 60s and 70s and the riots and the assassination of Dr. King and all that stuff, you know, when the bright part of the 80s and it seemed like, you know, boats were starting to lift and you had some compassionate, you know, leadership in Carter and a man who certainly was all for, you know, equal rights, you know, and not a racist. When all that stuff started to look good again, Reagan came in and clamped it down you know, and attacked the poor in his campaign while he behind the scenes was cutting those deals that I just explained, you know, and then selling arms to the Iranians, you know, and selling cocaine to Americans, essentially, bringing it up here, you know, and they brought so much of it up that it became cheap, right? And they made crack out of it in neighborhoods, you know, they dumped it all in the neighborhoods. And that neighborhood I grew up in, you know, I left in 1984, I left that, that area, right? My mom went to prison. She got caught up in, in the drug stuff herself and, and needed to go and did and gotten, you know, gotten a big bunch of trouble in her own life. I'll tell you that whole story someday. But it's not, you know, my point is, you know, the early 80s, it was taking hold, right? There's a lot of drugs coming into that area. So I move up to New York, you know, we all know what happens with cracks and crack and inner city neighborhoods and stuff. And I went back to my neighborhood at one point, probably 1989. And all these kids that I'd grown up with, like eating cereal with, sitting around in our, you know, pajamas, watching cartoons and having snowball fights outside and, you know, trick-or-treating, you know, my friends. I was like, where is everybody? And they'd all been caught up in the crack wars and gang violence and all this kind of stuff. And none of that stuff was in our neighborhood before, right? There was adults and stuff that, you know, could probably get drugs, but it wasn't like kids weren't involved. And thanks to Reagan, he took away free lunch and basically gave him cocaine instead and said, go sell this in the street. And then we can lock you up too, you know, which was just like a double kind of bonus for this sort of evil mindset. Because then you had the whole prison industrial complex come in where they're profiting off of this stuff yet again. You know, it's like vertical integration for racism. It's scary stuff, you know, and you'd sound crazy. You know, I may sound crazy to you now, breaking it all down like that, but that's what happened, you know? And the thing about Carter and the hostages, you always sounded like a conspiracy theorist saying that, and people have been saying it for 40 years, and now we know it's true. We also know the cocaine stuff is true, do. There's plenty of guys have come forward that have been involved in that. And that's somehow such a, you know, complicated story that it's still hard to explain to people, you know, and I know they've done series on it now, and it's much more in the mainstream and much more widely known and accepted. But it's still very like sort of Byzantine, weird stuff, you know, and it's weird that Iran was always involved until, you know, you see the confirmation of why. You know, and you have it confirmed and you think about the impact of that compromise, you know. So the same thing repeats itself over and over again. You know, that's the point I'm trying to make. You know, you had Nixon, who my grandfather worked with his whole career. You know, my grandfather was in the limo with Nixon in Caracas when it was attacked. If you've ever seen that video of the, you know, limo getting rocked, you know, my grandfather was in it and he yelled at Nixon. He said, cause my grandfather told him to take another route from the airport. Nixon was arrogant. He was vice president at the time, of course. And he wanted to go, go through the, the center of town and the limo got attacked. And my grandfather cursed at Nixon and said, I'm not gonna see my kids again cause of you, you son of a bitch. 
you know, and then later quit, you know, and, and my grandfather was essentially like one of Nixon's envoys to Vietnam behind the scenes. He was a foreign service guy, but did a lot of kind of the dark arts kind of stuff. This is my paternal grandfather, Harry Kassler, and ended up getting in a fight with Kissinger over the bombing of Cambodia. And not long after, you know, the Chinoa Cheno affair, which was Kissinger going to Paris in 68 and scuttling the peace talks. Because in 1968, America was ready to leave. We were going to pull out of Vietnam. You know, we'd sort of struck a peace deal. Kissinger got word of that, went over and scuttled it. They used this Anna Chenault, who was a wife of, of a famous pilot and stuff, Claire Chenault, Flying Tigers. And uh, they used his wife as the cutout, but the word got to the, you know, the Vietnamese and the NVA, and they kept fighting for another, you know, three, four years, 25,000 Americans died after that, after a war that was over. And then we signed the same deal. Nixon signed the same deal in 1973 that he wouldn't sign in 1968. Same thing over and over, right? Using global politics, using America and, and, and our electoral politics and manipulating them for personal gain never ends up well. And it's always been the MO of the Republican Party. And my grandfather was not a, you know, not a liberal kind of guy, you know? He was, you know, OSS in World War II, he was bombing Dresden, he was an intelligence guy in the planes, you know, doing, did some really messed up stuff for this country. And basically that's what he said when he left. He's like, I used to believe in what we're doing. And it was sort of so disgusted by Nixon only having Kissinger's ear, you know, or Kissinger only having Nixon's ear that he wouldn't, listen to him anymore. And my grandfather could walk into the Oval Office. His GS rating or whatever was like a general. You know, he had like pretty much the, like very high security clearance. Like none of that stuff is like, you know, he died in the late 80s. So like, I, you know, they don't, they didn't keep the same records back then, but he, you know, he was one of those men in the shadows in many ways that I talk about. My family was in Vietnam. They were there on the runway in 63 when President Dien you know, when it sort of collapsed and they evacuated the families. And my dad tells a story of sitting there on his grandma, on my grandma's lap with his brothers, his two brothers and his, I don't think his sister was born yet, and watching the tanks come down the runway as their plane was taken off, you know. But after all that stuff in 68, my grandfather left and moved to County Cork, Ireland and was like, I'm done, you know. He was just so pissed off, he became an expatriate. And they would come back every Christmas and stay in DC and Georgetown and like some, you know, friend of the family kind of dignitary's house and stuff. And it's a whole other story. You know, they'd outfit me in Brooks Brothers clothes. He didn't really approve of my circumstance with my mom or anything, <laughs> you know, the old school kind of wasps. And, and I was a, you know, I was a, you know, sort of bastard hippie kid. <laughs> but, uh, Anyway, I got to spend some time with them. That's not the point. Um, and Rosemary, my grandmother, was lovely, and she passed away in the late 90s, but she took great pride in me, and we had some good times. And she lived with Julia Child in World War II, or after World War II, rather, in Paris, and taught her how to cook. And my grandmother would always debone a turkey at Christmas. Um, I'm very much digressing. I apologize, <laughs> listeners. Anyway... My point is it's the same thing over and over, right? You go back to, 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 you know, to Kissinger and Nixon in 68, look at you know, Reagan, look at you know, G.W. Bush, right? 
That was a mess in 2000. The Supreme Court basically anointed, you know, W as president. And what happened? We immediately went into a war in the Mideast. It, it immediately turned into a profit-driven situation where people were lied to about geopolitical events, right? Because there was no weapons of mass destruction. That's widely known now. Right? There was no reason to go after Iraq. They had nothing to do with 9-11, but nobody questioned it at the time. I mean, we protested, right? I remember protesting in New York City and getting attacked by horses. <laughs> and you didn't even see it on the news. They were like tamping down protests. And the media didn't want anything to do with covering the opposition to that war. Everybody went along because it was 9-11, you know? And it seemed, you know, we did experience a real harbor, horror and people wanted vengeance. You know, they wanted blood and they were like, we're going to bomb somebody. And the guys behind the scenes knew there's a lot of money in bombs. Those bombs cost a lot of money, especially when you have a carte blanche way to drop them, you know. When you know the enemy can't really fight back. So, you know, and it goes on for 20 years and... Industries make a lot of money. You use a lot of oil in a war. You know how much oil they used in Afghanistan? You know, in 17, 18 years, however long we were there? Like, all these people profit, and then it just dissipates. It just goes off into the dust. And if you try to connect the dots, you sound like you're crazy until 40 years later somebody, you know, spills the beans because a former president's on his deathbed. And now we know, but we see the same patterns. And my point is you have to learn how to realize it. You have to see the big picture. And it's practicing. It's, it's like I said, the opposite. Do the opposite. You know, if you're confused and overwhelmed, try to be like, well, how can I figure some of this stuff out for myself? Iran-Contra was the thing that I cut my teeth on because it was so confusing. And I was living in Westchester now, so most of the kids, like their parents, voted for Reagan. And they were Republicans, basically. And I'd never experienced that because in Maryland, people are smarter. <laughs> like their, their parents are all bureaucrats and like it's more education kind of oriented. Here it was more money oriented, right? And more like first responders oriented kind of thing. So it's just sort of a different mindset. I'm not really saying people are stupid or that it's New York, they're smart, but it was a different kind of like there wasn't, it wasn't a liberal arts mentality. It was like business school, you know, and cops and firemen and that kind of thing. And, and they, they loved that Reagan stuff because this was the part of the country that was benefiting, right? Corporate rating, all this Wall Street stuff, you know, like buying companies on interest, you know, all that kind of stuff happened under Reagan. He deregulated the financial industry. And if you were in on it, there was a lot of money to be made. And this was the part of the country where a lot of that went down. So that was new to me, you know, and seeing kids my age, not really understanding what was going on, caused me to try to write this paper explaining it to the best of my knowledge and what we were doing in South America you know, because we were funding these death squads that were torturing, you know, and killing women and children, you know, and torturing people and stuff, you know, in the name of fighting communism, you know, in the name of some, you know, distant oppression or socialism, when ma mainly it was just BS, you know, it was just a business deal, you know, for these conservatives, for these neocons, you know, and I tried to explain that. And the reason I got hip to it was a Jackson Brown album called Lives in the Balance, right? So... I heard that album, I wrote the paper, it was my birthday as it was, you know, this past Saturday, 
This is back in the late 80s, and my grandmother buys me a ticket to go see Jackson Brown at Radio City, you know, for my birthday present. And I go down there by myself, I take Metro North, I, I've told this story on the show before, you know, and I sneak into Radio City, and the first name I drop when I try to get past the security guard was David Lindley, you know, because he was playing with Jackson that night. I hadn't seen him play, he was opening for Jackson, and then, in, you know, played with him during the gig. I hadn't seen that since I was a kid. You know, and I told Jackson that. I told him about the Sunday Festival when I first saw David Lindley playing his fiddle and telling this crowd of people, like, you want it louder? You know, and just rocking this crowd with a fiddle. You know, this crazy, like, elf-looking dude with long hair and a polyester suit in the age of, like, guitar god, you know, cock rock you know for you know like rock and roll in the 70s was like jimmy page you know and a dude in like tight pants with a cucumber stuff down it like how hard he could wail you know it was a very kind of like bombastic masculine thing and it was very big martial amps and eddie van halen you know it was just loud in your face kind of stuff and here's a guy with a fiddle with a folk instrument doing the same thing, like a complete virtuoso and rocking the crowd, you know, just like it was Eddie Van Halen or something. And I was like, that is amazing, <laughs> you know? I was six years old and the gig was the Sunday Festival, which was Jimmy Carter's initiative to have a day to honor and celebrate solar power, Sunday, you know, not, not the day, not the, the day of the week, but you know, it was about like, so it was all these progressive people coming together. I wrote about this on my Substack about Lindley. But, um, you know, it was the first time I saw sort of what that feels like, being in a group of like-minded people that are sort of oriented toward progressivism and are showing up to do the right thing, right? And it's very inspiring. There's a palpable energy you'll feel in those crowds. I talk about it in my live show. You know, when President Obama was inaugurated, we had that big concert. Same deal. You get two million people showing up in a field with love in their hearts, you're going to feel it. It's going to ripple through the crowd. It's going to fill your soul. And you can, you know, it's a movable feast. You can put that, put that in your pocket and take it with you. I can feel it right now. I can feel it right now. I can feel it. The energy that comes from that, you know. And there's people that know that. You know, and a lot of your greatest musicians somehow have this sixth sense about like being deeply in the moment. Jerry Garcia had that, you know, there's a lot of guys have had it. I mean, the greatest musicians are always in the moment. Dave, Dwayne Allman, you know, but David Lindley had that. And he would say like, there's two ways to play a solo. Like you can, you know, you structure a solo and you're playing in certain key and stuff, there's certain rules you have to follow, right? But you could play the same thing note for note, or you can sort of like jump off a cliff and respond to what's happening and trust your, you know, your subconscious. But it takes a lot of guts to do that. It's the same way in acting or anything, you know, but you always get the better results that way. You know, it's that analogy, come to the edge, come to the edge, and you're scared and the teacher pushes the students off and they fly, right? You know, so that's how you truly fly. And, and, and Lindley just did that. You know, he, he could just pick up any instrument, find anything, an oud, a bazooki, it didn't matter. That's, that guitar is from him right there. I got that on tour with him. Um, he told me to put it in open G. But um, anyway, I, I don't want to get too emotional, but like, 
he would play that way, you know? And, and when you play that way, you can create real magic. And I saw him play that way, you know, on that day as a little six-year-old. And it meant a lot to me because we later drove across the country with my mom and my uncle and we only had, you know, two cassette tapes in the car and one was a Grateful Dead live show, which I wasn't that into yet at, you know, second grade. And the other was, you know, For Every Man, Jackson Brown. And I got to hear, you know, Graham Nash and David Crosby on the harmonies, and I got to hear Jackson's lyrics that were sort of very, you know, sort of compassionate and aware of what's going on to the world and recognizing there was a lot of suffering and a sort of lot of work to do, but not in a maudlin way, but in a way like, hey, I know it's, it's not easy, you know, but we're gonna kind of like get through this and this is what's going on, you know, and, and that appealed to me. You know, I needed that kind of message and that kind of sound at an early age, and that sound was essentially created by David Lindley, you know, because <laughs> that's, that's what blossomed Jackson into in the albums he made, you know, and I later ended up working with all those guys, which is just insane. And, and you know, as I said, I was living in Maryland too at the time, and they recorded Running on Empty at Merriweather Post, which was my other grandfather worked for the NSA, my maternal grandfather, and he lived in Columbia, Maryland my mom's dad. And my mom and my uncle got tickets to go see Jackson Brown at Merriweather Post, but they wouldn't buy a ticket for me because I was a kid. It wasn't like they were going to let me in anyway. But I remember they were like, hey, you get to go to grandpa's house and have macaroni and cheese. And I was like, I want to go see Jackson Brown. <laughs> like, what the hell, you know? So they dropped me off at his townhouse, and, you know, which was near Merriweather Post, you know, a couple miles away, and they went to the concert, and then they picked me up after, and we lived in Crofton, and we drove back to Crofton, and they said, hey, he recorded a new song tonight, like he had this brand new song that nobody's ever heard before, and it was amazing and stuff. That song came out a couple months later, it was running on empty, <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh my god, I could have been there when they recorded that, and that, that always struck me as funny. You know, so then I meet Jackson at 17 and I tell him about this paper and he takes a liking to me and, you know, one thing leads to another and I go into the business myself and end up working as Jackson's road manager at 35 after, you know, almost 15 years in live television and music. You know, I'm hired by his management and we head over to Europe and David Lindley is on that tour. So you want to talk about a life coming full circle, you know, or following, you know, the guys that you want to listen to, you know, that was a moment that wasn't lost on me. And I remember standing on the side of the stage once, you know, after soundcheck with David and telling him, David Lindley, telling him that story about getting dropped off and how I was pissed, you know, that I didn't get to be there when they recorded that. And he looks at me, he goes, yeah, but look where you are now, man. <laughs> man, just the coolest guy. I mean, I could do a whole show. I've been talking for a while, but... Should I tell you my, I've told you the bazooki story. For those who didn't read the Substack, the bazookis, I'll play it another time. I've played it before on this show, but David would play bazookis, which is a Greek and Irish instrument. It started in Greece. It's a double chorus instrument, so it has eight strings, but they're in sets of two, four, you know, so basically like four strings that make a lot of twanging noise. And uh, he would open the concerts playing a bazooki like instrumental or he'd play like a Steve Earle song on a bazooki. It was just wild. And we had a day off early in the tour and we're in Bristol, England. I'm sure I've told this story before, but on occasion of his passing, I must tell it again. So 
we're in Bristol, England. It's a day off. We'd been there at the beginning of the tour. We're back there. We had just done Glastonbury. And I wake up and I see this like, looks like a castle to me on the hill, you know, above the harbor, sort of above town. And I'm like, I got to see what that is. Like, you know, I'm my first time in England. You know, I'm like, man, <laughs> like I'm into everything, you know. So any chance I had free time, I was out. I wasn't sitting around my hotel room. Like I was out on the streets. So I was like, I got to find that, you know, castle or see whatever it is. And I, I start walking up this hill to get towards it. And as I walk up the hill, there's a music store called Hobgoblin Music. And I look in the window and it's all dulcimers and mandolins, all the kind of stuff I like, you know, acoustic instruments. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, that's like everything Lindley plays is in this store. Like, that's crazy. Let me go in there. So I go in there and there's like hundreds of instruments, you know, just very well stocked. And for some reason, my eye is drawn to a bazooki on the wall. And I'm like, oh, it's a bazooki. You know, no one's around. Let me see what it feels like to play it. Because Lindley played it, you know, and I never picked one up. And it looked like it was pretty hard to play. But I was like, let me give it a try. And I pick it up and I start playing. And it's like everything like that I use music for, which is essentially like air music. You know, I just, I just want to like, I want it like as a valve to let whatever's inside of me out like that that's why I play music I'm not like really structured so much I'm just like I want to soothe myself you know so I pick up this instrument and it starts working I can immediately play it like wherever I put my fingers in whatever kind of pattern I'm picking it's like working and I'm like music is coming out of this thing like how is this happening like did I play this in another lifetime like what is happening now and it never happened to me before like that. And, and I already owned a lot of instruments at that point and been playing since I was 10. And uh, I was like, this is crazy. I've never had an experience like this, you know? And I was like, I gotta buy this thing. So I buy it. It wasn't even that expensive. It was like made in Romania. I buy it, you know, a couple hundred pounds. I walk out of the store, it's in a little gig bag and I, and I make it up to the castle and I'm all excited, right? And, and it's not a castle, it's like a park you know, with like an abbey, you know, like a cathedral or something. And I see a bench and, and it overlooks the city. And you can see the harbor and the water beyond and this beautiful, you know, historic Bristol, England. It's a sunny day. We're in June, you know, perfect weather, 75, maybe 80 degrees, no humidity on the water. Beautiful, you know. I sit down on this bench. I pull out my thing. I'm playing. I'm looking at the city below. And this couple sits down on the grass. And they're like sitting on a blanket, you know, having a date or whatever. And I start playing this music. And just like in the store, it just starts pouring out of me, you know. And I'm not even self-conscious and I'm not a professional musician, but like I'm just playing this and like, you know, I'm vibing. They're vibing on it. And I, I look over and they're like starting to kiss. So I kind of look away and I keep playing this thing. And then they come over like five minutes later. And they're like, thank you for the music, man. This was our first date and that was awesome. Right? And I was like, oh my God, like this instrument just paid for itself, <laughs> right? Because it worked for me. I got, had fun playing it in the sun. And, you know, and this couple, you know, I gave them a little soundtrack, you know. So I was like, this is amazing, you know. So I packed it up in the gig bag and I went back down the hill and I walk into the hotel. And as I walk into the hotel, Jeff Young is there um, with Kevin McCormick 
and a guy named Mark Goldenberg, who's the other guitar player, and they, you know, they see me and they see this gig bag, and they're like, "What do you got there, Noel?" And I walk over and I'm like, "Ah, oh, it's a bazooki. You know, I bought a bazooki today." And Mark goes, "You weren't in Hobgoblin Music, were you?" And I said, "Yeah, it's where I got it." He goes, "I was in there this morning with David. He played that thing, put it in his tuning, and wants to come back and was going to come back and buy it later." So the reason. I could play that thing, and the music was pouring out of me because Lindley had already been in the store, picked up that instrument, put it in his special tuning, which somehow worked with my genetic code, <laughs> you know, as a musician. And like whatever way I flopped my fingers, it was working, you know. That's amazing. Like that's amazing because I put it back in a traditional bazooki tuning as an experiment, and like I couldn't play the thing at all. You know, it was just like, you know, completely like wrong. But when it was in this F sharp, B, B sharp kind of like weird like modal tuning that Lindley had come up with, it worked perfectly. So I would bring it to him every night, and he would put it in tune or every couple of days, and kind of tutored me a little bit on the art of twang. And he said, you know, that's one of the best sounding bazookies I've ever heard. You know, that's a good one. It stays in tune. Keep it. That's a good one. You know. And I later came to find out he said that to a lot of people. If you brought your instrument to him, he'd be like, "That's a good one. Hold on to that." Right? And he didn't care about fancy stuff. I mean, he appreciated. It. He like he was friends with this guy, Roy McAllister, who's still with us, who built this guitar. I've talked about him a lot. We all hung out actually in Scotland. But um, you know, it, it, it wasn't about the money. You know, it was about it wasn't it, you know it wasn't the wand. It was the sorcerer with Lindley. You know, so that was a gift too, right? Like, hey, that's a great instrument. Feel good about it. You know, find the tuning that works for you and process your life and use it to inspire other people. Shift the energy around you because you never know who might need it, right? You know, and I just realized this telling this story right now that that description I gave of what I saw him do to the crowd, you know, with his violin was kind of I did that to that couple in that moment, right? I was able to like let some truth out of the inside of me that 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 vibed out into the moment and, and, and enhanced somebody else's moment. And what more could we want out of life as human beings, you know? But to go through life and help other people, you know. Energetically, by using your skills and your gifts, or your dreams, or even just pushing them in the right direction, you know, even just telling somebody, you know, what you hope and aspire to can be, you know, a benefit. You don't have to accomplish anything. You don't have to own anything to do that. You just have to show up and participate in life. You know, and find the joyful side of yourself. Find the opposite actions to the darkness. You know, and 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 in every moment, find a way to share that. You know, to bring that forward. That's how we battle this stuff. You know, that's how we combat the darkness. You know, that's how we get through this. You know.
12 bar blues. I mean, the guys who made that up had it rougher than I'm ever gonna have it. You know what I mean? And they, they, they responded with music, right? They would play that, you know, at the end of the days of backbreaking, you know, labor and inequality, they created an art form to help, you know, carry them through. And what did it do? It, it, it changed the whole world, you know, rhythm and blues, blues music, jazz music. That's the greatest gift the United States has given the world, in my opinion. You know, that's a whole nother show. But that came out of darkness. But the human spirit was not going to accept the condition of that darkness. The love that is inside you has to find its way out. And, and music is a way it comes out a lot. And literature, right? You know, and dance, and any form of expression, right? That's what points to the truth. That's what saves us. So I think I've gone on long enough. I'm happy to be back with you guys. Thanks for all the wishes. Thanks for all the people who got t-shirts and stuff. And uh, you can find me, noelcastler.com. You can check out the Substack. It's called Noel's Notes. You can keep listening to the podcast. Tell your friend or don't. <laughs> I don't care, but I love you guys. And uh, stay safe. And uh, I'll be back next week, I promise, okay? Thank you very much. This is episode 97 of the Noel Castler podcast. Peace.